Hey everyone, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. My name is Nick Gibson. I'm the lead pastor here at High Point Church. I'm joined today by Rick and Peggy DeYoung and their daughter, Abby Monteith, and her baby, who hopefully we won't hear from. We'll see. So guys, I want to recap a little bit. One of the reasons you're on the podcast is a bunch of people at the church were introduced to you during our series on um, serving at the church on the 7th of November. You talked a little bit about serving relative to your family and that connected to a bunch of parenting mottos and some parenting like ideas you guys had and so um there was actually a good bit of feedback of like we would love to hear some of some more of these um principles so that's kind of what we're going to do today so first of all um did you did you guys have these in mind before you had kids or did like did they evolve over time like how did you get to like a series of set principles that you could teach in a class well, we started with a class that we took uh, dealing with godly parenting. And then as a result of that, um, I developed a class called Excellent in, Excellence in Parenting. For the church? For, like for, to teach at church? Yeah, to teach at church. And the as a result of that, Peggy and I had, one, were of like mind. Mm-hmm. And two, we said, okay, we got to get these to, uh, to our children. In, in a way that they can remember, in a way we're not lecturing them every time. Mm-hmm. But we also wanted to teach it in principle form so that it could be applied across a spectrum of, of different situations. Right. And so they just kind of evolved. It's one of my principles in, in training. It was to do short little statements that people could remember and right. could repeat. So did you, Okay, so just for our audience's sake, how many children do you have? We have seven. Okay. And so you, did you know you were going to have more than three? Not necessarily <laughs> before well, <it> was, <laughs> we started. <laughs> it was one of the things that uh, we that I taught was to let God um, be in control of that. And if I could have seven more, I would. Yeah. But we kind of ran out of time. Yeah. Okay. So so you had a bunch of children. Great. So and you need at some point you realize you're you need to have one of the things I always say is one of the reasons I think silly parenting models prevail right now is because people don't have enough kids for it to show how silly their parenting models are, but it, they have enough children to make themselves miserable. And so what I see is not kids that I'm terrified how if they're going to be reasonably good adults because though that there is some of that. I see parents that are really miserable with each other. And with mm-hmm. their lives, they hate mm-hmm. having children. They mm-hmm. they love their children, but they don't really like having children, and they don't enjoy each other because their parenting model is mm-hmm. so. I don't know, self abusive. I guess I. Do you guys have thoughts about that? You know, I think one of the best things that we did before we had well, when I was pregnant with our first, mm-hmm. we went to a, a class, and it got us both on the same page. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that was the base for all of this. Yeah, and the we we saw one of our secretaries was a godly woman, and she had two daughters, and her daughters were an absolute joy to her. They were teenagers in high school. It's like the rest of our friends were just petrified of their teenage years, mm-hmm. and that they knew this this big rebellion was going to come, right. and. We said if if they can do it and do a godly model, so it helped us pursue it, and not just let it happen. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. 
So uh, one of the things I was going to ask you is, is there like a mentor figure? Was it, was that the kind of person where there are multiple people where you're like, Oh, these people have done parenting. It looks like decently. Well, you just, no, there was, there well, we had our, my, both of our parents, Peggy grew up in a very, um, moral Catholic home mm-hmm. and I grew up in a very godly home. And, um, and so that was, that's probably both of our, uh, speaking for her, uh, probably a lot of our direction in that uh, both of our families, I had uh, four siblings, three siblings beside myself, four total kids, and, and Peggy had a large family as well. So they had to work together as a family. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I never, I almost never saw my parents like trying to decide like, how are we going to discipline this or how are we going to, you know, direct this kid? It was just kind of like they both did it the same all mm-hmm. the time. <laughs> Yeah. Cool. Um, so a lot of these people would say are like kind of high standards, right? Did you, did you, um, how did you, how did you deal generally when like kids just fell short of high standards? Like you're, I mean, you have like pretty high standards, like we'll get to some of these things in a little bit, but surely you had, there was constant failure among your children. Like how do you, how did I think one of the things people say is how did you keep your home from being like a profoundly negative home or judgmental home relative to all the correcting that needed to be done, given that your standards were pretty high? Well, I'll speak for what Peggy did so that she doesn't have to speak about herself. But one of the things that Peggy always did was with the kids was that when one kid succeeded in something, everyone rejoiced in it. Okay. And then when one kid failed, we protected that one in the sense that if they were disciplined, we went into the room to discipline them away. Trying our best not to, and again, we were not perfect in it, so please don't assume that we were. But we would try to protect those that need to be disciplined so that it was private with them. Mm-hmm. But then when there was success, to rejoice. And you've been around our family. We, we just have a good time. We're yeah. always having a good time. Yeah. Yeah, I think trying to make things fun is like something that people underestimate. We, we had a, we interviewed a potential staff member one time and you know, you get, you like to try to sell your place to them or whatever you interview them, you decide. And then you, and then you're like, do you have any questions? And only one person we've ever interviewed said, how much fun is it to work around here? <laughs> and when that young woman asked that, I was like, man, I really hope she comes on her staff. Cause that like, there's something yeah. really wise in the attitude. Uh-huh. Cause you could tell she was a super hard worker. Right but she just wanted to know how much fun it was going to be, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. I think another thing we did was we trained them early. I think earlier than most parents do now. Mm-hmm. Like we, and if they if they learn it when they're, you know, like Cam's age at two, and you're pretty set with them at a very young age like that, that you don't need to be on them all the time because they already have that down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, expectations set young and then the the funnel kind of opened up then so instead of you know closing in on them as they get older like you can't do this and what about that and you know the funnel opened so that it was just more freeing for them and us Mm -hmm. because they already had the basics down they already knew what was right and wrong Mm -hmm. so then it was more up to them so to carry it out one of the things in the excellence in parenting class i had which we've talked about, I have a heart chart. That's where actually that came from. A real simple flow of how your heart works that you can 
to fairly young kids you can show them. And then we had a chart of correction on the wall. And so that if you did this certain thing, this was what happened. And so you, had, you literally had consequences written and charted. Consequences. Yes. It was charted on the wall. So, and the scripture the was cupboard. with it. Yeah. It was inside the cupboard. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so the you had the put offs. Okay. You did this. Okay. You got to put that off, and you got to put this on. Okay. Mm-hmm. Don't do this, but do this. And see, so there's where the positive side come in. Mm-hmm. And then on the chart, and it was different for different kids because certain kids. They, they would actually prefer to be, you know, have some corporal punishment. Mm-hmm. And other kids would say, don't take this away from me. Mm-hmm. So it was different for what was important for different kids. But they knew that, that was, if they did that, this is the consequence for it. Mm-hmm. But the big thing is to do it without anger. Anger becomes self-serving for the parent and hypocritical because you're actually using many times a sinful method to bring about righteousness. Mm-hmm. And it, it seemed very hypocritical. So it's the idea of, okay, you've decided to do this. It, as a steward before God, we have to bring correction. So this is this is the correction. And that what we agreed upon as parents uh, was charted on the wall for to go by. Mm-hmm. Did you, you alluded to the fact that some of your kids had like different temperaments in the relationship to things. So how, how did, cause I think a lot of parents are like, well, you can't have this systematic thing because your kids are all different and you gotta, you know, you can't treat them all the same. How do you use a system that's as systematic as this and yet still engage in the kind of particularity to kids that are really different? Well, our kids are radically different. I, they're in some of them, uh, if you looked at them crosswise, they they would cry, you know. <laughs> and others of them, they'd say, "Just give it to me," you know. And so there's a huge spectrum that we had having seven kids, and having boys and girls, uh, mostly girls, five girls, and um, that we we did not fall into the trap that if this is the punishment, this or the correction. I don't like the word punishment that much, or the correction. This is the correction that. Uh, it can be different. It can be the same, but it can be different and applied to, if a correction has to take place, it has to have consequences to it that that they believe a consequence. Others of them, that's not really a consequence to them. So mm-hmm. it's like, I would prefer that. And I think mom explained that to us. Like, well, mom, like you gave me extra dishes to do because I was you know, naughty, why does she, you know, have to sit on timeout or whatever? And she'd be like, well, that's, that's her punishment. Like mind your own business. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so for what's some of the like advice you'd give to um, couples who are married who have not yet had their first child? Like how do they get ready to parent besides try to make a human? <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm just passing that down now to my daughters because Abby's starting her family here. And um, I would say, like, you know, you, Pat, there's a few books that you had that mm-hmm. you gave us um, to read, and you really just encouraged us to be on the same page before mm-hmm. we, you know, before. We had Cam, we made sure like, okay, for the first, the next six months or whatever, like, you know, 
babies change so quickly and what mm-hmm. they need changes so quickly. But like, let's make sure we're on the same page before it starts. And that's just kind of continued. Like, okay, now Cam's two. Like, what do we need to be looking forward? You know, how can we be on the same page regardless of, you know, what the correction is? It's just nice to be on the same page so that you can bring that correction right away and you don't have to you know discuss it first mm-hmm. while the two-year-old forgets what he did wrong mm-hmm. you know yeah. so that's where at the last church where i taught that class excellence of parenting they actually taught a couple times for parents that we could bring these principles and, and and elaborate on them some and it was very interesting to see the fruit of those classes bear fruit as the years went on in the different families. Because yeah, you guys are in Richland Center, which is about an hour west of Madison, smaller community, 5,000, 6,000 people. Mm-hmm. So you could like, your church, not a big church, and you could see, literally see these families oh, yeah. week in and week out. And you were there like 20 years, right? Yeah, correct. So. Yeah, we got to see them grow and and people that were in our class that had almost no kids and then, then like the Steels, they had what? Like six, six kids, seven, seven kids. Eight. And. It's really cool to see them now, like, you know, we used to babysit their kids and Mm -hmm. now they're like going over and they're helping, you know, the younger kids and they're, you know, at um, basketball games, they're helping stack the chairs and clean up afterwards. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's cool to see, like, I remember going to those people's weddings and see their kids like excel. Yeah. So one of the things you said in church Rick, was that you prefer to use what you call principles rather than rules for a number of reasons. Do you guys want to lay that down before we start jumping into some of these principles? Well, the principles can be applied more generally. Rules can... I've I've been in homes that just have rules upon rules upon rules. Mm -hmm. And then the kids to try skirt those rules, look for little avenues to get around them. And, and they say, wait, wait a minute, this doesn't apply because of this and this variable happened. Right. Especially as they lawyers. get older. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah. that's right. 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 And so, uh, yeah, there, I, remember, I read a parenting book not that long ago by John Rosemont. And one of the things he said was don't tell kids why. Well, like give reasons because you're inviting them to argue with you, mm-hmm. which I always thought was like, you know, when I was a kid, I would have really liked to be given a reason. Mm-hmm. Of course, I assume as the child actor that I have a good heart, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> and what, but having children, I realize that that is, in fact, what you're doing is when you give them a reason, you're inviting them to argue with you. Unless it's like a very specific, like, they're like, yes, sir, I'll do it. Would, would you, do you mind telling me why so I can understand? Like, when they ask mm-hmm. like that, then fine. But like, usually it's just like, oh, oh, we're still talking so I can talk back, mm-hmm. you know? And see that, we'll get to that later in, the, in that, um, this idea that you're you're going to allow the child to to earn the right to appeal okay and but with the the principles that when they start to see them work and they start to see and you'll actually see this they'll start to see some of their friends make mistakes and they'll see that and not that you want them to make mistakes but they'll see them make mistakes and they'll say, oh, okay, that's how that applies. And then even down to some of the practical things, when we get to some of the practical models, they, they start to see them work, and then they start to have a belief in them. Mm-hmm. And it really builds a trust that, Mom and Dad, you're not leading us down this path of, of all these rules where you're just trying to put your thumb on us all the time. Mm-hmm. But there's real reasons for it, 
and there's real blessings that come with it. I think especially as you get as we got older, like people, you know, a lot of our friends had um, parents had rules of like when they had to be home, like curfews and like, you know, who they could be around and whatever. And, you know, our youth group leaders and stuff would be like, oh, well, what is the rule for your family? And we're like, uh, be responsible. Like we Mm -hmm. we can be home whenever we want. We're Mm -hmm. expected to be responsible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of surprising to people. We did not have curfew when they had to be home because they knew that and i'm not saying that we didn't correct them now again is this a wise choice that you you got home at 11 o'clock on saturday night when church is the next morning is that a wise choice but that's how you would especially when they got older how you would pose it to them that you know this may be not the best thing yeah all right well let's jump into some autos shall we so uh the first the first set that i have in the handout summary is attitude towards god so one of them is just serve the king or we're you're a young we are servants of the king we're gonna honor him like how do you like how do you teach that what's the significance of it well the serve the king was a little bit different than the young one even though they're kind of the same all right the yeah they're different on my sheet why don't you, you can break them up for me. yeah sure so serve the king was in still i use it all the time for an encouragement mm-hmm. okay that you're going to go out today, and this may be a tough day for you. Okay, so do your best. It, all this was wrapped up and served the king. You do your best for the king. Mm-hmm. That not to be not that you're not a servant of men, but you're primarily a servant servant of Christ. Mm-hmm. And that to to see with with rules and so forth, it's really easy to get them referred to you. So you become the authority. Mm-hmm. What you want is to continue to refer them to God, that God is the authority because God is with them all day long. So serve the king was, was was much more of an encouragement and to say, press on, go towards the mark, you know, keep going. Whether or not anybody appreciates you or whatever, like what yeah. you're doing is serving God. If God, if you're trying to please God, you can do that. God yeah. is pleasable yes. in every right. situation. Right. Yeah, and you often used it after discipline too. Like, you yeah. know, when you reconcile after a discipline, you know, you like you got this. You know, serve yeah, the cake. I would o- correct. I would always, after discipline, after a correction, I wanted always to leave them with hope. Okay, I know you can do this, and this is how you can do this. I, 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 I have hope that you can do this, mm-hmm. and then encourage them that way. Where the the second one is, and the short was you're a de young. Okay. Mm-hmm. But and that can be misstrued because if that's all you, if that's where it's at, then you could be, you're building a pride in your name as a, as who you are. But the whole thing was, uh, you're a the young, you're a servant of the king, and we will not dishonor our king. Mm-hmm. And you know he is an honorable king, and we will act with honor. So as they start, and the whole thing uh, was that before the situations was occur, would occur, we would coach them. Okay, this is what we're going to do. This is what we don't want to do. Okay, and uh, then as we would get in the situation, if we would see them starting to slip down a path, say, "Okay, you you're a the young." Okay, and that meant something. That mm-hmm. uh, this is not where we're going to go. It was just we just did not allow it to happen. It was. It sounds like it was also code if you were in public. Correct. So like you could say mm-hmm. that, and mm-hmm. you knew what it meant, Abby. But yeah. other people around you might not know all that went with it. Right. Yeah. I also had another code, and that was I snapped my fingers. Mm-hmm. I could be carrying on a conversation with someone, and I'm paying attention out of the corner of my eye, 
And all I do is snap my fingers and they would know that they're starting down a path that they shouldn't start. Yeah. Especially yeah. like at church when we were there for like two hours after the service and <laughs> we're sitting there and we're like, okay, well, we have to come up with something to do. And right. Probably meant running around or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds fun. All right. You got, yeah, you got, you got to do something. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, I think one, one thing too for the serve the king, like now, you know, as some of us are like going to college and stuff like that, you know, and we would leave for the weekend, I would be like, oh, serve the king. And it wasn't like, it was, yeah, like that's the goal of, of what your week is going to do is to serve the king. But also like, it was just like dad saying. So it was kind of like, yep, I believe that you can do it too, which was, it's just always like a special thing. So the third third one here under the, uh, the particular heading about attitude towards God is too much is given, much is expected, which t- turns out is in the Bible, <laughs> right? But you use that as a major saying in your family. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the assumption being an American is that we are given much. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that means that if we're given, uh, you know, as Paul said, uh, to give freely and to use those things, not just for our own good but for the to better others and to promote them you know and so it was see what we tried to do is set some expectations that were one achievable but two underneath that were godly Mm -hmm. and so that we were given much and so we're going to we're going to give and i think that's in kind of like two ways one Dad has like every tool under the sun. And, you know, so when someone was in need of something, you know, he kind of had the mindset of like, well, I, mean, I have this tool. I was given it like it's expected. God expects me to bless others with that. Mm-hmm. And secondly, in regards to time, you know, like, oh, Dad, do we really have to go help them? And it, Well, we have this time. You know, God expects us to use it for him. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, you want to do some of the attitudes, attitudes towards family mm-hmm. here? Okay, so the first one I have is teaching, training, loving. We rolled our eyes every single time you said that. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't one of the more, pro- more popular ones. No. <laughs> but this is actually started by Peggy in that, you know, it can become very frustrating as, as a parent at times. And... What happens is you start to dive into the self-pity that I've got to put up with my kids, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, no, that's not my... Again, before God, God called me to teach and to train and to love my kids, okay? Mm-hmm. So it was a refocusing that we would, Peggy and I would repeat uh, and where the kids could hear, but between one another. Yeah, that was kind that, of our code. That is our code. <laughs> yeah. Teaching, training, loving. Yeah, that's what we're doing. Not killing, choking, <laughs> training. <laughs> and so we could kind of help one another by saying, okay, teaching, training, loving, teaching, training, loving. So that was like your saying. That was like the parent saying, this is what we're doing. Uh-huh. But we would say it so the kids could hear it too. Yeah. It's not, we wouldn't make it a big deal, but that they knew what we were saying. Yeah. And they'd say it to other, like when they needed to correct us in public, you know, and, you know, they needed to take a minute from their adult conversation to go, you know, correct us or something. They would always come back and be like, teaching, training, loving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, thank you. Thank you, God. You could be together one more time. 
Yeah, so this is when we would pray. I wouldn't say every time I prayed, but probably 70% of the time I'd pray. I would give thanks that we could be together one more time. Mm -hmm. uh, we all know people that expected to be together that night, and they didn't make it together that night. Mm -hmm. And so, again, it really gave an eternal perspective to what we're doing. That, And again, it wasn't a big deal. It was just part of the kind of, I normally end the kind of the prayer that way. Mm -hmm. And um, that God is good, and that life is short, and that we really need to enjoy one another now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember um, there was a situation where one of your guys' friends didn't come back, and that's kind of where that saying started. And, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of us, so we're not all together all the time. So when we can be together, like on the Friday night when everyone's home from college or when Dad comes back from a work trip or something, you know, it was like, yes, we're back. We made it. Like, thank you, God. It'd give us an opportunity to to really get back together. And if you remember really early when they were younger, I I was not in Richland Center. I was in Racine all week right. for eight years, and I'd come back. But one of the practices we did was that each child had the floor to tell me something they wanted to tell me about their week. And it was really a, just a really cool thing that each person had a chance to, to talk and, but we uh, still do that. <laughs> so you were yeah, in Racine and they were in Richland Center? Correct. For eight years. For eight years? And you were gone all week? Yes. Every week. Saint. My mom. Yes. Whoa. <laughs> That's insane. But we were very communicative. I would talk to Peggy two to three times a day. Yeah. And so, and there were times when I was in Racine that I said, no matter what the job, I'm going home. I got to go home. And so I would. And they would be three hours, right? Mm -hmm. Three hours. And you would show up and take care of business, mm -hmm. but hopefully it didn't involve chainsaw. Okay, <laughs> so one of the well, um, normally it wasn't just. We it was not the discipline. Usually, it almost just, never. You needed to be there. Yeah, I just needed to be there for something was happening, and I would just go. So one of yours is first time obedience. The idea that kids should obey the first time. A lot of parents profess this as one of their sayings, and few seem to be able to achieve it. What what was what made that work for you? And that this is really really big, mm -hmm. and I'm sorry, I don't believe in counting, because what you've taught them to disobey is on one and two, and then on two and three quarter, I'm going to now obey because three is when I act. Mm -hmm. So why not act right away? So what yeah, you, I, I personally. I have a seething hatred for counting. <laughs> <laughs> so the what we did was, okay, I would tell them, and I would make sure that they understood. And if they didn't hear me, and Peggy sometimes would, would say, Rick, they didn't hear you, okay? Mm -hmm. And so I'd repeat, okay, this is, but that'd be the only time I'd repeat, but this is what you need to do. I would wait. Because when does the point of disobedience occur? When they've decided they've heard it, they processed it. They said, I'm not going to do that. So therefore, that is when the consequence would come. You only have to do that once or twice. And it's done. But you, you need to do that because, again, I really I would argue from the, the counting thing yeah. that you've taught them to disobey on one and two and then finally to act. Because most kids will act at about two and a half. Yeah. See, I always felt like kids... Um, where they like delay obedience. It's like trying to inflict a cost on the person right. commanding. Absolutely. 
it's an, it's an economic principle, right? Like, okay, maybe I have to do this, but I'm going to inflict the largest cost on you. And my hope is, is that you will then use this power as little as possible because it costs you every time. It's a huge hassle every time mm-hmm. you're trying That's to right. make me do something. Exactly. And so the parent has to set up a dynamic in which it isn't a big cost for the parent. Yeah. In excellence in parenting, I taught that as a fallback position for the child. He, he, he for control. Mm-hmm. He wants control, didn't get it there, so I'm going to fall back to a position where I'm going to get at least some control by inflicting some type of. And it isn't, it doesn't, if you deal with it right away, it doesn't become this game. Mm-hmm. But what it does is sets up the, now the positive side of that. Because once the child gets to a certain stage where they are doing first-time obedience, they're showing that respect. Now you start to grant them the, the right to appeal. They've earned the right to appeal, but to do it in a respectful way mm-hmm. to say, you know, dad or mom, can, can I do this? Now, if it's foolish, then you let them know that, that, that it's a foolish thing that they've asked for. Mm-hmm. And we, we teach foolishness and childishness, too. Yeah, so what do you mean by a right to appeal? Could you just clarify that? So is that like if they want to say, hey, I don't, why are you asking me to do this? Or it, that doesn't seem right. Like, or does it just mean like you have the right to ask for things if you obey? Yeah. No, it's, it's in, the, in the situation. Because let's say I'm playing a game, all right? And they've been faithful in, in when you've asked them to come and let's say set the table and they're playing a game. Right. Right? So let's, let's set up a real life scenario. And um, they actually say, can I appeal? And at times you might say... Because no. they want like 10 more minutes to finish the game? That's correct. Okay. Sorry. Uh, can I appeal? And at times you might say no, because maybe someone's coming over and we don't have 10 minutes. Right. Okay. But they, they ask for the right to make... So they the li- in your house, they literally said that, can mm-hmm. I appeal? Yep. At first. Then, then it loosened up as time went on. So what did, what did you do, Abby, if you wanted to appeal? But in your mind, you're like, I'm, I'm going to try to appeal. Yeah. Yeah. Like, always respectful, acknowledge what you needed to do, and then just say, like, oh, we only explained why we wanted to appeal, not just be like, oh, I don't, like, I just want 10 more minutes. Like, hey, we only have 10 more minutes of this game. Do you mind if we finish this quick before we start? Mm-hmm. Sometimes the answer is yes, and other times it was no. Mm-hmm. Sweet. All right, attitude to, attitudes towards work. The one that is most famous in my house is when one de young is working, all the de youngs are working. Yeah. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> <laughs> well, we within a reason here, within corporate tasks, right? So mm-hmm. there, everyone was given different tasks to do. Some would sweep the floor, some would do the dishes, and they could choose to do those possibly at different times. So everyone had their tasks. But when we had to make wood, you were expected to make wood. Everyone was out there. And even and even when they were could hardly walk, they still had their snowsuit on, as you saw in some of the pictures on Sunday. Yeah. They had their snowsuit on, and they were out there carrying sticks. We would find things that they would actually accomplish mm-hmm. with the group. And we would apply this to, to all different tasks that we would do, um, if we were going to make something, I made a lot of things, and so um, we would do it together. As, as again, some of the pictures on Sunday showed. Yeah. Okay. Well, but it, the overriding attitude, I should probably add, the overriding attitude is that um, if they're working, if someone else is working at a, at a you know, corporate family task, 
it's my duty to to be in there with them. Okay, mm-hmm. not sitting over here seeing if I could play a video game for a little bit longer, because believe me, I I had plenty of times where I went in the house and said, mm-hmm. "You are leaving right now to go outside to help us right now," mm-hmm. and um, and so we we weren't perfect, and you know I wasn't perfect in it either, mm-hmm. uh, but that what now carries into adult life is that that's the way it is. Okay, when someone has a task. And one of the one of my daughters brought up a situation where someone in the church here at High Point had a need, and she said, "Well, can I volunteer us?" I said, "Go ahead." So we're going to corporately help them, and we do this did this all the time. It was really funny that my friends who were more middle aged in the thirty and forty years old, they were almost more concerned about my kids coming to a task like moving or something like that than me mm-hmm. because like, oh do the kids have time to do that <laughs> yeah. and you're like um they have no responsibility <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but see they would want them to come because of how much work they could we could all get done if the de young showed up right. how much work we could get done it's a lot and i think like dad would have to come in and tell us like when one de young is working all de youngs are working for like years mm-hmm. before like we're established like oh, I don't want to be the last person out to do one. That person is like frowned upon. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm going to get my butt out there. Yeah. So the one, another one is see, do. So that, I'll give you how this happened. This happened when I was very young. I was doing a brake job with my dad. And I was right there with him. And he turned and he looked at me. He said, Rick, he said, now, by the way, some of you might think this is very mean. I, I would argue it's not. He turned to me and said, Rick, he said, how come you don't have my next tool here waiting for me? He said, you should be involved in what I'm doing, watching what I'm doing, and you should anticipate what tool I need next, and you should have it here already. I should not have to ask for it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I needed to transfer that in a way. And so it was like, constantly be looking for what needs to be done if someone's doing something if 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 they need a screwdriver go get them a screwdriver already so that when they're ready to put that screw in if there's screws lying on the counter and someone's getting something together like putting a mount up or something like that um like a tv mount Mm -hmm. um, go get them the screwdriver already they don't have to ask you to get the screwdriver go get it yeah. And or even a bigger task. These tables need to be put up. There's going to be a gathering. Okay, so we'll put the tables up. You don't have to have someone say, "Well, can Could you, you go, please?" Yeah. 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 And we use it a lot at home too, because you know, in the house, there's just we homeschooled for many years, and there was always a lot of things to do. You know, messes and stuff, and so. Yeah, especially that if like someone was coming thing. over, mom would be like, "See and do, see and do." <laughs> yeah. See the mess, go pick it up. Don't you don't have to be me going around telling you to pick this mess up and that mess up and that mess up. Yeah, um, one of the things, one of your things is, you're, are you doing a good job or your best job? That's one of Peggy's. Yeah, I use that a lot um, with the kids. Just in that same thing, cleaning up or whatever task they had to do, you know, so I didn't have to go back after them all the time and and finish it you know i'd have them come back did you do your best work here you know Mm -hmm. 
So that's where I use that. But a see lot. again, it was that's a judgment thing. That okay, you make you be the judge. Is this your best work that you could have done? Mm-hmm. Versus saying, well, you could have done this and this and this and this, mm-hmm. but let them make the judgments. I think that like just transferred over so well into like everything. I remember like writing papers in high school and college and being like, is that my best I can do? And I would have to like, I just couldn't let it sit there. Like I knew that it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this principle I'm sure in some way is relative to time. It's like, is this right. the best right. you Correct. could do with the time that you had? Yeah. Correct. Cause I, I find myself always telling people like doing a good job is doing the, your best job given the resources that you have in time is one of those limited resources. Yeah. So if you have to clean the whole house, then you might not do it all great, but it's the best mm-hmm. you could do cleaning the whole thing in the time that you had as opposed yeah. to mm-hmm. what you wish you could do perfectly. And that's where yeah. you have to be very careful as the parent mm-hmm. <laughs> not to exasperate your children, yes. you know, Ephesians 6, mm-hmm. is to understand the time they're in and what the resources they had and to back off from maybe the standard you wanted mm-hmm. and, and be understanding in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, okay, next is one of the ones you talked about on Sunday. Adjust, adapt, and innovate. Yeah. I love that saying. I, Dad would always say that when we would come to him and be like, Dad, we can't figure this out. And we'd stop him probably from doing some important task. And he'd be like, adjust, adapt, and innovate. Like, think through it. You know, Think outside of the box. What, what could have you done here? That was bad grammar. Um, <laughs> You know, and help us think through like, okay, well, if this didn't work, what else can we try? Mm-hmm. And and not just being like, well, why don't you like be smarter? You know, adjust, adapt, innovate. Think through it. Push harder. Yeah, and I would, I would have to at times teach them through it. Okay, so let's step through this. Okay, what what other things could you have done? And then don't just give it to them. Just mm-hmm. say, okay, where I would, because it would be easier for me to do it. Right, just go ahead and do it. Yeah. But to actually step them through it. Okay. And it would it's so wonderful when they start to see the light go on themselves to say, mm-hmm. okay, if you just get them, just give this this little bit of information, then they say, Oh yeah, I could have done that. And then boom, they get down that path. And so it becomes a snowball, a positive mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, my negative version of that is why I tell my kids I don't do for children what they can do for themselves. Yeah. But that, that's, this is probably better because it's teaching them the positive lesson. Well, I think too, like we, like Dad said, we did so many projects together, and most of them involved like drills and hammers and you know we're working things or fixing a trailer or whatever. And we would see him do that, so he would walk through like, okay, guys, this is the issue. Like, mm-hmm. what are your ideas? We need to adjust, adapt, and innovate. And we would work through it together, you know, brainstorm together to mm-hmm. try to think outside of the box to, to fix it. Yeah, so when you were packing a set of bearings on a new trailer, did he just invite you if you wanted to come out and help him? Or were, did he no, just no, say, no. hey, you're coming out to... When one young is working, all the other are working. working. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, number five under this is success in any endeavor comes through the mastery of the fundamentals. This is also taken partly from Vince Lombardi, I understand. Yeah, that uh, it's why well, actually you actually articulated in, in, in your book mm-hmm. um, that about mastery of something. And mm-hmm. this is this was this is how I applied it was that we had to um, to go through and practice it and practice it and practice it until you're bored with it and then do it again, you know. Mm-hmm. 
and the but it's the fundamentals the the joy of the fundamentals in a task and so we would do this in different tasks like she was mentioning in woodworking okay you have a screw you don't put it in with a hammer right mm -hmm. but then sometimes you got to drill a pilot hole you're going to crack it mm -hmm. but it came really to fruition because i coached yeah and i coached um basketball basketball in both varsity teams and mm -hmm. so i was really and so it was both like boys and girls i did both boys and girls he was busy Wow. Yeah. But I think too, like even when we did wood, you know, you had one person that ran the wood splitter because they had well, they were practiced at the wood splitter and they could do it the most efficiently. They knew when to pull the lever back, they knew when to push it forward, they knew our hand signals and they were efficient at it, and that only comes through practice. And same with stacking and, and all the rest of the things that we did. And so it's it was really a, a good thing to to get them that I wanted them to learn to do mundane tasks and to attack them okay mm -hmm. that we are going to figure out a way to do this that that's going to make it the fun thing we're going to figure out the way to do it the most efficient yeah so we as a family we would put up a cord and a quarter cord and a half of wood in a little over an hour hour and a half mm -hmm. but we would just go crazy at it and and the, and they got to to enjoy it it's very inter interesting because we had internationals come and they would and we Students. had some internationals for like three years straight. They come want to come back, mm -hmm. and they'd have to do wood too outside in the cold in the winter. But they started because some of these guys never done manual labor of any type anywhere in their lives, yeah. and they started to like it. Yeah, where it was like okay, not I'm, I wouldn't say that they would say okay, let's go out and do wood. Mm -hmm. But it's like never. when we got out there, they started to to take it on because of the the getting a task done and seeing that woodshed get full mm -hmm. or seeing that piece get built. Mm -hmm. Well, and even like in sports or really anything like, oh, I want to get better at this. Well, how do you do it? Hmm? Go back to the fundamentals and practice them. Like it just applies to so many things. Yeah. yeah, yeah one of the reasons I coached my girls in volleyball was I was trying to teach this whole sub-generation of girls. Like if you can understand that the fundamentals is the most important thing for how to pass a volleyball, the thing you're going to take from this is not how to pass the volleyball, right. but that focusing on the details of the fundamentals yes. and getting them right is is fundamental to everything. Yeah. And that, I mean, one of the reasons I say that's why Christians, I encourage Christians to play sports, not because I believe in treating sports like a its own God and this idolatry that we use to destroy our joints and our teams for the rest <laughs> of our lives. But instead, like, it's something where you learn principles where the costs of failure are really low. Right. Like, if you if you fail at sports, who cares? Because sports don't matter. Right. That's the beauty of sports. Not that they matter so much as because it's that they matter so little. But you can learn incredibly important principles about how life functions, teamwork, authority, sacrificing Correct. for one another, understanding whether or not you're bringing honor to a team or not. All mm -hmm. focusing on fundamentals. What does mastery actually take? Right. All can be rehearsed yeah. in Discipline. sports in ways where the failure doesn't really cost you anything in life. Right. You know. OK. Um, next one is no job is below us. Well, we were leaders in the church, mm -hmm. but if you're going to really be a humble leader, then then there can be no job that's below you. Mm -hmm. And I had to communicate that to my kids because it's really easy for them not to, to say, uh, okay, someone else can do that. Like there was times like when Peggy didn't like the weeds in the beds. And so after church, we'd weed the beds at church. Mm-hmm. 
And no one was there. No one could see it. No one even knew who did it. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, okay, our hands got dirty. Big deal. Okay, so we went on from that. So it was those types of things. And when we went to pull the weeds, uh, I, we didn't expect the kids to be swinging on the swings. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're out there pulling the weeds too. Now the thistles they'd leave for me to pull, mm-hmm. but the rest of the thing, you know, <laughs> they that, pull out. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I've had a couple times in church life where. Like we couldn't get volunteers, enough volunteers in the nursery. And so I didn't preach. And they were like, okay, so Pastor Nick is in the nursery this Sunday because we just don't have enough volunteers. Um, and then we'd have like an elder preacher, somebody who was like, you know, was going to bring God's word, but it was not going to be as funny or whatever, you know? <laughs> and it was like, people were like, oh my gosh, like what? He shouldn't be doing that. Well, yeah, but you know, no job is beneath us and like somebody's got to do this. These right. things have to be done. Most of life is made up of menial, right. simple tasks right a lot of that came into play like after church events everybody's like okay yeah i'll come early and help no one wants to stay late and clean up but well one thing happened um this is with nikki which you guys don't she's our eldest daughter she's in the military but she was down at um and she was a teenager she was down on a short-term mission in panama and there you cannot put the toilet paper into the septic system. You have to put it in a wastebasket. Right. Okay. Yeah, most countries, that's going south, right? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so a dog got into both bathrooms and strewed this feces-littered paper over the entire bathrooms. And they had to be disinfected. And the ladies, the older ladies, went to the task. The young ladies went the other way, except for Nikki. And Nikki was in there, and one of the leaders came to me afterward, and she and they said, "We just it was shocking to see someone go in and do such a dirty, menial task." And I told him, I said, "I would expect nothing less. I would be so disappointed if she had went the other way." Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's funny how like the fact that she picked up feces-laden toilet paper and scrubbed the floor that's brought a lot of honor to your family. You know, like like to look at it in a Christian way like that, whereas other people be like, you know, well, I'm not doing that. And they don't see that as a dishonor. Like, right. well, somebody else had to do it because you didn't. Like, right. who, who are these people <laughs> who you think are your servants? Right. You know, that are they're low enough that they should have to do it. You know, that kind of idea is. And I think it affects how they're late, their work because these are listed under work principles that like as an employer, as somebody who has employed hundreds of people now in my life, um, I don't want anybody who doesn't feel that way. Right. If there's anybody on my staff who thinks that there are jobs that are below them, th- th- I don't want them on my team because that over, that flows over into so many things where people just, they walk away from work and then they don't care about details and then they're not mm-hmm. focused on the fundamentals and they like it, you get this player who wants to shoot and they don't have any fundamentals. They don't box out, they don't dribble, <laughs> they turn the ball over, but oh man, they want to shoot and they want you to pay them a lot for it, you yeah. know? Yeah. So I, 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 that's a great. Okay, so um, practical wisdom is next. You guys ready for that? Yep. All right. This may get split into two episodes. We'll see. Um, uh, use things only for what they are designed for. Yeah, this only is for a, what they are designed. This is my one of my absolute favorite practical. We broke a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my so, kids too. It's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> we can't have the saying things. that's one of them <laughs> yeah. that's not here is they break <laughs> it and I fix it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, but this is a really good one. Because you don't use a chair for a ladder. Right. You go get a ladder. Okay. You don't sit on the arm of the sofa 
which keeps your sofa from getting wrecked because it's not designed to bear that weight. Right. You it's don't sit to have on an arm. Yeah. <laughs> what did I say? No, you're like, you you're not supposed right. to sit on it. It's yep. for your arm. Your That's arm weighs right. like yeah. three exactly. pounds and right. you're behind and body weighs more. Yeah. 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 So all those things applied in so many different areas mm-hmm. that, um, you know, don't use a screwdriver as a pry bar and use a pry bar as a pry bar. But you know what? Then I have to make sure I have pry bars there. Okay. Right. And I have to be pretty consistent with what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> and in which I, I was, cause I, I, I believe this personally. Mm-hmm. So I would have the right tool. As Abby said earlier, I have a lot of tools. So, mm-hmm. um, I would get the right tool for the job and it gets monotonous sometimes because you got to go out of the way to get the right, tool. the right tool to do the job. But it really teaches your kids responsibility because God has provided this thing to you that's designed to do a certain task. Mm -hmm. And if you're not using it for that task, then you have a chance of breaking it or breaking yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, If like, for example, use a stool and it falls over. Um, So, yeah, I think that it's, that's important from a, like what theologians would call a teleological perspective, like the purpose of something that like, if they can master the purpose of a screwdriver or a ladder, right, then they're, okay, you're a human made in the image of God. You are for something. You have a purpose. Mm-hmm. And so sin is essentially, like, this is in some ways a way to teach the concept of sin. It's the it's the misuse. It's to use something for something other than what it's for mm-hmm. or for its purpose. And so if you learn to use a screwdriver for its purpose, you might then learn to use yourself for your purpose. Hmm. Yeah. It's deep. Okay, back up to the backup. This this is one that some will question. It's one that is sort of after my own heart because I live this one. But, um. Okay, this comes from, and several mm-hmm. of these come from a class I taught in efficiency, mm-hmm. especially in one of the trades that we were in for quite a period of time. Mm-hmm. And so they would have me, because I found so many people, um, like Peggy worked at a, a, a given shop, and they had seven employees and they had one screwdriver that had a broken tip on it. And so when they needed a screwdriver, seven people would be scanning the shop to find this one $3 screwdriver. And how much did they spend? Right? Yeah. And it's a way, this efficiency in life, by the way, because this applies not only to business, but it applies to life that I always believed, especially in, this is for critical things, that you have three levels. You'd have the main tool you'd use. You'd have a backup in case that broker got lost. And then you would have a critical one. You'd have a backup to the backup. Now, it doesn't all need to be readily accessible at that point, but it'd be available to you to use. Mm -hmm. And so it it becomes, um, it helps you achieve the other one too, to use the right tool for the job, Mm -hmm. is that you have something to back it up. I just think like how many camping trips or, you know, places that you are that, you know, you're in a time crunch and you want to get something done or you're somewhere where you don't have access to the right tool that, okay, you know, we don't have a tire reader to see what our, you know, the tire pressure is. Oh, go grab the other one. It's in the thing, you know, Mm -hmm. those tiny little things are important. Yeah. Yeah, I get made fun of consistently by my family, but like one of the things that um, I was taught when I was younger living in a colder climate like Wisconsin <laughs> is that you always have to have, once winter hits, you never let your gas tank go below half full <laughs> and, you, and you always have like winter clothes in the yeah. back. Mm-hmm. And like 
that was that seemed kind of foolish. But then, like, there were numerous times where, like, I had plenty of fuel to get where I needed to go. There was some kind of holdup, or like, or somebody needed help. You, usually, it wasn't I needed help; it's somebody yeah, else needed right. help. And I mean, one of the stories I love to tell is like, my two daughters are out on a Thanksgiving on a Valentine's Day date with each other, and they find some dude who's stuck in a parking lot because his car won't go out and they like take off their high heels. They put their snow pants on over their cocktail dresses and they, but they put on boots and they push this guy out mm, and the guy great. just like, doesn't even know what to say. He's like, I've been here an hour. Nobody, <laughs> no male person in Madison has helped me. And these two girls in cocktail dresses just pushed me out. And I was just like, dang right. But they came home like super excited. They were like, dad, yeah. you'll never get to happen. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we That's had that. Awesome. We had that one night ice storm, and we were going because Nikki was going back overseas, and we we're gonna meet. And the two boys put uh, the truck in the ditch, and the the hill was just as icy as could be. Mm-hmm. And I already was on the way, and I had our tractor on the back of my truck on a trailer, and so I went out there. The boys had their their winter clothes on with which all reflective safety gear mm-hmm. and so the the policeman the sheriff comes up there and he's like oh these guys got this <laughs> right oh it's the youngs <laughs> yeah and so just like with your daughters which was that's a phenomenal thing it's a great it's a great thing yeah I th- and so the spiritual principle you draw this from is from matthew 25 1 to 9 which is the parable of the of the virgins where there's like a certain group of I mean, virgin in this context is like bridesmaid, like mm-hmm. a younger woman who's not yet married and they're at a wedding and they have like lamps because this is going to be well after dark that like the festival is. And some have just like a lamp full. So you have like, imagine a little ceramic cylinder and then there's a little bottle that you can get with it that holds the amount that you would use to fill, refill it to light it to burn again. Right. And some of them brought just the lamp full and others brought the lamp full with the refill. And so the the bride and groom are just they're not there, right? And so the everybody's everybody's lamps burns out, but some people have more oil, mm-hmm. and the others have to go buy it. Except for it's all all the shops are closed; you can't buy more oil right now. Mm-hmm. They're just unprepared for the reality that face them. It's a fairly simple and reasonably predictable mm-hmm. reality that happened, right? And and to Jesus, this is an indication of perseverance. Mm-hmm. Like you have to be ready to do what it takes to make it to the end in the faith. And in some ways, like. That's extremely like, so this principle is like extremely practical for your kids going out into life. Like you've got to have that ratchet set in the car. You've got to actually have the boots. You've got to like think about what can happen and what you're going to need and have backups, right? But then spiritually, you've got to be like, like persevering in the faith is like this. You've got to realize that like, it's not going to be easy. Like you're going to hit all these hiccups and hitches and difficulties and sufferings and all these kinds of things. And if you don't have in your, like your theological, your moral, your personal toolbox of who you are, all these ways to like see, adjust, innovate, and adapt to face whatever it is. You're not going to persevere as a Christian. You're going to like right. you're going to lose your faith. You're going to break down as a person. Mm-hmm. And that like you want you want kids to have both of those sets of principles, both for their faith and then how that adapts into the practical ways of how they serve right. others. See, it's consistent. It's consistent through life because you're bringing the principles all the way from who you see God as, who you see each other as, then who you see. The, the practical things God's given you. So it's, it really brings a consistency across life. Yeah. So one of them is, this is like another efficiency one, uh, is most used, most accessible. <laughs> Have you heard that one? Abby's like nodding like, yup, that yeah. one. I, is one of my, it's so important. It is. Mm-hmm. I, I would just ask the women that are listening to this, mm-hmm. plan your kitchen that yeah. way. Okay, so this is what I ask them. I say, okay, what is neatness and organization the same? The answer is no, they're not. Neatness is for appearance sake. It looks or- good. Organization. Everything looks like it has its place. Right. 
but it can be really inefficient. Mm-hmm. Organization is for efficiency's sake, that you're going to organize it so that your most used knife is in your most accessible spot. Mm-hmm. And your your silverware is that way. Now, I would do this with tools, but as you go through life, you start to organize and think that way. And so when I would design our kitchen, which I designed both the kitchens and we worked with the ladies, is that we would design work centers so that all the tools you needed for baking were in this section right here. And all the tools you need for food prep, spoons and stuff are here with where you would do those activities. So you would actually stage, like if you look at my toolbox, the drawers are staged from the most accessible things. The things I use the most are right at the top drawer. And then they go down from there. That's now, how I organize my desktop at work. Same way. Where do I click the, where can I go the least amount of clicks to get to where I want? Where am I going to, what am I going to use the most? Yeah. Everything. So it can apply across whole, all kinds of different things. And that kind of efficiency means you might organize. Someone might come in and not think it looks the neatest. Yeah. I'll give you an example from one of our workplaces mm-hmm. that um, we would have back the truck in and we would load canvas jobs to go out to the boat yachts in the mm-hmm. marinas. And so the all the, the stuff that we needed, to, the different pieces that needed to go in the truck were all staged right at the end of the truck. Well, one day we came in and we got... Package number one of one, uh, one of three, two of three. Oh, where's three of three? Well, I go to the sewers who know the system, mm-hmm. and the third package was supposed to be right there. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't. So my cleaner says, "Well, that looks bad." So he put it way in the far corner of the shop. <laughs> okay, so we had to go search the whole shop to find three of three because he thought it was neater to be in that far corner over there than to be right where the truck was at yeah. the. That. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, um, we'll leave it to our listeners to come up with like the practical examples for that one. But that would be a good, a good dinner brainstorm for, the, for a couple of family. Um, too much force, a failure you will make. Yeah, this was... Don't force it is what I heard as a kid. Yeah. Don't force it. <laughs> right. And so, the again, it was a, a judgment thing that um, I wanted to teach the kids. Because face it, throughout young young kids, it's finding how much strength, how much pressure to use right. and push to pull. It's right. one of the reasons why rough and tumble play is supposed to be so important for little kids. Is like, it was it was okay to punch daddy in the shoulder, but when I punched him in the nose, right. he got upset. Yeah, right. Like, because so, force is like, you can use this, but not that, right? Yeah. yeah I, so when you pull this lever, if you pull it too far, you've bent it. And now it can't be used anymore, you know, any number of things. So Mm -hmm. it was really a thing to, to, when I would see them, they're pulling, they say, wait a minute, too much force, a failure you will make, because I didn't want to fix it partially, you know, and, but they would learn that. I remember one of the kids pulling on a seatbelt and they couldn't get the seatbelt out and they were putting all their force on it. I said, no, 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 too much force, a failure you will make. You're actually wedging it in there harder. So let's go and just not apply force, but let's go and analyze how that buckle is caught in there. So we go in and we'd analyze how the buckle was caught. Okay, this is the you know the Rubik's Cube, if you would, to get the buckle out and to get it freed up mm-hmm. versus just trying to pull it and wedge it in there worse. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a lot of like moral and adult examples of this, like in relationships and yeah. like getting your way when you're having a fight with somebody and mm-hmm. like too much force a failure you will make is I think a a good principle. Like I think what one of the requirements for elders is that they they are not given to anger, and different forms of temperance and restraint is fundamental to maturity. Do you have any stories about this one, Abby? You want to share? I mean, it it just happened all the time. Like like Dad said. Um, yeah, we would just try to like really pull something and, you know, then he would be like, too much force of failure you will make. And, you know, then as growing up, it really taught us to kind of reevaluate like, oh, okay, am I, I, I feel like I'm pulling this too hard. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm forcing it. Like, let's just step back and what little lever are we missing? Like, mm-hmm. um, it sounds like that this is kind of a parenting principle. Yeah. It veiled like that's true with children. Like, children are a thing you can break, too. Like, mm-hmm. getting back to, like, exasperating your kids. Too much yeah. force and a failure yeah. you'll make as well, right? Yeah. yeah. And what really, sure. I should probably, this is so important. I And I think it came more with me that I had to decide that Peggy was on my same team. And that if she gave me correction... Don't get defensive over it because she's doing it for my betterment. Mm-hmm. So right. this is the one she most quoted at you then too. Mm-hmm. Well, no, she, she, Rick, she, too much force. She, 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 would say, she, well, she would just give me the look. She didn't have to say anything. And, and the thing is, I needed to be humble enough, and I'm not saying that I don't have work there, but I needed to be humble enough to say, wait a minute, okay, I recheck myself because she's a great indicator to me. So... Really, I just advise parents to not get really defensive with one another, especially in front of their kids, to really say, okay, I need to, to trust my my help me mm-hmm. and to, to get this together as a team. Because one of the techniques the kids will use is a wedge to go between the parents. Mm-hmm. And so if we're agreed upon things, that if they come to dad and say, okay, what about this dad, that... Um, it's going to be the same with what mom says. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is I would defer, and I use this at work, by the way, to the person closest to the, to the decision. Mm-hmm. So if it's something to do with supper, that's mom's area. Okay. So yeah, we say the word domain at our house. Yeah. But like whose domain is this? Mm-hmm. Right. And so who's ever closest now. Cause people find that offensive now because the egalitarian says you're all equally doing everything. But, like, this gets back to efficiency. Like, right. households right. don't run efficiently that way. Like, somebody needs to get good at grocery shopping because literally this store has it for 20, 20 cents less than that. Like, and both people are not going to do that. And right. both people aren't, right? So you do end up, like, specializing. Specializing creates domains. Domains make it so somebody is closest to the decision, right? right. And that's well, what you're saying is you've got to respect that. Yeah. And I, so I do. And I'm not saying that I haven't ever overruled it. But I had better double, triple, quadruple check mm-hmm. if I'm going to overrule and that has to do with the kids, too. You have to show respect to them. If they're in that area and they make a respectful appeal, okay, don't just brush them off. You mm-hmm. got to consider it from their perspective and and maybe capitulate, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I think it's also a telltale sign. Like, why would we be asking dad about dinner? Like, hmm, that's a little fishy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You'd be like, well, what did mom say? And you're like, oh, well, she said I had to do it, so. <laughs> yeah. Busted. Okay, so this one is, it seems like a no-brainer, but I think that it, it holds sub-principles that are important, too, is don't scream unless it's an emergency. All right. This was a huge one at our house. 
Yeah, because there were no, a number of people. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There well, could we, be a lot of Well, case because we yeah. only had our kids. We would have up to four yeah. foreign exchange students besides. You, up to four? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, and people we, in the basement. We, we loved people. And, mm-hmm. and it was known that one of the gathering places was our, our house. So we designed our house and even our current house so that um, it, we wanted our kids' friends to play at our place mm-hmm. because... I had, I've had so much impact on them. But yeah. one of the things, going back to Scream, is that let's leave this for emergencies, mm-hmm. okay? Because I will drop, if you scream, I am dropping everything and I'm on my way. Same with mom. We're, we're on our way because there is an emergency, someone's hurt. So to scream is, is just for that. And we did not allow the normal screaming right away. There, there's other ways you can play and laugh and do things. Mm-hmm. You don't have to scream. Right. And um, so that's because I would become, if they scream, I was, I would come up if they, if they, they if it was an emergency, then we had a little talk. Yeah. <laughs> Peggy, was there like a spousal scream, especially the years that were like Rick was in Racine, that was kind of like, I, this is what I do when I need, I need you. And I don't use it very often, but like, this is mm. when I try to make sure you know I need you. You know, usually it was his intuition to know that. I didn't mm. I didn't usually I ask. Could, I could tell. And it's like, I'm leaving. Yeah, I'm the type like yeah, I would, would just handle it, you know, <laughs> but but he could tell at times when it was just time. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, all right. So the next thing is, uh, we only I only have a couple more here. Is a uh, uh, large hard's bottom, medium soft middle, odds top. Okay. So That's when you have a saying. family our size, <laughs> okay, we would occupy all the seats, and we'd have too much luggage for the space in most vehicles. Oh, so this is packing. Okay. Let me let me let people listen to this, thinking about like how to pack something. Large hard's bottom, medium soft middle. Odds top. So this is like how to pack the back of a car. Yeah, right. correct. Okay. So everyone or wood or wood or anything, anything in life, right? Mm-hmm. And so we had so many kids, and we'd be carrying stuff out, so they all had to know the system. And so you start with your large hard. If you put those in later, you can't get them in, right? right. So you put those in, and they can support other weight. So you put all your hards in first. So you have two. Notice each of these have two variables, right? Right. Large hard, <laughs> medium large soft, and hard. Odds. And so <laughs> then, once you got the, all the hards in, then you'd start with the mediums because the mediums can sit on top. Mm-hmm. And the other thing which I added in here is that I did not allow loose items. You couldn't bring me a set of shoes. Don't bring me a set of shoes. Okay. They got to be packed. Okay. Pet peeve to my day. <laughs> What's that? Pet peeve to my day. I, you know, Joe will bring something to the car. I'm like. There's a bag for that. <laughs> right. So the, and then the mediums, you know, the duffel bags and stuff, you can still set stuff on them, but not the heavier stuff. So you have all the heavier stuff at the bottom and then you work your way up. And then the oddballs that you can't put anything on top, those go on top. And so everyone knew how to pack and I didn't have to, we would just, before we started to pack, we just review it. Okay. Large hard's bottom and medium soft middle odds top. Okay. Then yeah, dad would come back through and, and actually do oh, it. Oh, yeah. I, it, annoy, it annoys me to no end sometimes. Like when our kids would like just throw stuff in the car because we didn't, I was just, our, my rule was everything has to be packed in a bag and then you put it by the car. 
Mm-hmm. It's your job to get it next to the car, then I'll put it in. It's fine. <laughs> but don't don't pack the car. Because it actually takes some doing when you have a number of children. And you have more than like I only have four children. And so packing for us, but still like we drive we're driving to New York on Wednesday. Yeah. And like we're in a Honda pilot, which is not a lot of payload. Right. And mm-hmm. so I've got to pack for four people for Thanksgiving in that thing. So and I have so I have the Thule mm-hmm. and then I have the little grade on the back and I gotta make it all work and I don't want them. So mm-hmm. in the family we grew up in, which we had four kids and same type of thing, I did the packing as a kid. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So everyone just let me, they did it, brought it to me and I'd pack it. Mm-hmm. And and put it in so that I had to learn that. But see the the problem is is that if I'm also one of the main carriers, then they know the principle if mm-hmm. not to go put that duffel bag on the bottom when I've got to put a big tote in there. Right. Right. Okay, the last one is for like public behavior. If you ask for something, you will not get it. Okay. So this one I did a lot because I would on especially on Saturdays, okay, I was gone all week, right? So I'd have five girls in tow. Mm-hmm. And we were normally work our work well they're you know the snowsuits and type of stuff and so we go to to because I was gone all week so I needed to maybe get something at the local Walmart and so I tell them ahead of time if you ask for something you will not get it okay mm-hmm. so I didn't have all five girls begging for something mm-hmm. but what I did was I watched what they liked and then not all the time but a lot of the time I. I would say, if you want that, you, you get it. And so they would still get their stuff, but I didn't have this, you know, people throwing temper tantrum, especially at the candy aisle, you know, right when right. you're checking out. I would say, okay, you can you can get one thing. Yeah. But I never had any type of, but I had to I had to put invest in them and know what they liked. And because um, I, I know what your son's favorite candy bar is now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Abby, what was that like for your, from your perspective? We just stared really hard at the candy we wanted. <laughs> but I mean, it was true. But it, like, did it feel like he was paying attention to what you really wanted? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It felt like a special treat. Like yeah. instead of like us asking for it, it was like, oh, dad got us this. Not like I asked for it. Yeah. Um, so so it, you, it felt like dad was benevolent and cared rather yeah. than like you were able to manipulate him into getting what you wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Um. So it, any uh, any other those are the ones that I have. Are there other, any other sayings that that are memorable to you, Abby or Peggy, that we didn't cover or that you guys want to? Well, I, we were talking right before this of the dad would always say, especially when we were like doing wood and we're like, oh, dad, we, we can't live this. And you'd be like, are you a man or a mouse? <laughs> and, you know, five of us girls, we had our little, our little spot of rebellion and we'd say, neither. <laughs> and that yeah. always like flustered him a little bit. And it was just like a little bit of victory of like, yes. <laughs> so what's it? I think part of the things people struggle with is that there's a lot of like parent centered model or like child centered mild parenting where it's kind of like everything's about nurturing the children and you like give them whatever they want. And you like, you, there's not a lot of discipline. You don't tell them this is the way it is, you know, kind of thing. And the feeling is, is that kids, if you nurture them and they have everything that they need, then they'll be good people. That doesn't comport with Christianity super well. Um, but then there's like sort of this like uh, heavy handed parenting model where it's like parent centered parenting and the kids are going to do what they're told and that's all there is to it. And it's very rigorous, very structured, very like, and, and that can feel like, um, like a really negative experience where kids feel judged and ex- exasperated and they can't wait to get away. Right. So like, 
how do you pra- how do people practically do this? Like it feels kind of like okay, it it feels like a lot to be like loving while being very disciplinary. Well, one of the things why Nikki, our oldest, is extremely successful in the military, and I knew she would be, because what we wanted to do was build creativity under authority. Mm-hmm. That within the authority, without defying the authority, you create a creative model that that people can excel. And so, you know, the our kids have pretty much excelled in 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 the world, uh, and. But they did it within authority. So like within a business structure, they really enjoy it. But you have to rejoice with them as in their successes and promote them to be creative, mm-hmm. you know, that adjust, adapt, and innovate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in projects they're involved in is to support those as much as you can. Um, but this is part of the excellence in parenting class was to deal with those different models of, you know, a, a child-centered home versus a parent set at home versus a biblical home mm-hmm. where there's a balance in between mm-hmm. where, you know, children obey your parents and fathers do not exasperate your children, mm-hmm. that there's that balance that you're continually, that you have to be humble enough to say that I, don't, I am not the, the king here. Right. Um, Everybody's under authority. That's correct. In, the, in a biblical home, as opposed to kids being just under that's the right. parents' authority. And that's what I would tell them when we would discipline that I have to do this because I am God's appointed authority mm-hmm. as judge in the home to judge righteousness and sin. And if this is sin, and I wouldn't say this all the time, you wouldn't repeat this, but right. you would generally teach that as the understanding. And then you, when you apply correction, then you need to, to have that mentality too. You can't be out there in anger. Well, because you embarrassed me, then I'm going to, I'm going to give you correction mm-hmm. and uh, make you pay for it. Uh, so it's that being consistent across all those things. God, God is so great, giving us everything we need for life and godliness. Mm-hmm. That if we apply those things in the way He would have us do it, it's it's the best model. Mm-hmm. I think too, um, starting really young, more strict. You know, more like okay, this is what we do. This is what we don't do. You have to do that anyways. They're you know toddlers. They mm-hmm. need to understand that. And then releasing them, you know, as we got older, we were given a little bit more leeway, just a little bit. And if we, you know, didn't succeed in that, you know, we were definitely corrected and, and talked to. And, and you know, dad would always be like, okay, now you know you're going to have opportunities to make it right. I expect you to do that. You know, you have a mm-hmm. chance, not just be like, oh, you know, discipline right away. You know, as we got older and were teenagers, you know, he would call us into his office and be like, okay, I expect to see this corrected in the future. Mm-hmm. And if there's not, there will be there will be consequences. Well, one of the principles that Peggy applied early that's so helpful was a, a quiet time. Uh, you want to talk about that? Word? Yeah, Peggy, probably people want to hear more from you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> now, we had a, we actually called it a sit time. But yeah, they had to sit, I mean, pretty small. I don't know when we started, probably around two. Um, they had, after lunch, there was their time that they had to sit on the couch. They could have books or whatever they wanted, but they had to sit in one spot and and just practice being quiet. And so everybody had their, their sit time. And, and so then that really helped at church and different places where you'd go. I mean, they were just used to being able to sit there and, 
entertain themselves. So, so some of this stuff goes back. I mean, Abby, you have you're at least twenty five, right? So, um, some of this goes back to times where there weren't super a lot of smartphones, maybe even years before Facebook and whatever. Yeah. So, uh, w- were there were there technologies that were starting to like? Because when I was a kid, there weren't like Nintendos, and people had video game systems, and people watched TV all day. I mean, still then. Are there ways in which you tried, you actually combated like ways that digital and virtual things detracted from developing human life? We didn't really have any of that when the kids were growing up. And I didn't let them watch much TV at all. Yeah. I mean, we like brought books to church and we would like read books during like, you know, I, I, the two hours I, there's like some, yeah. <laughs> if, if you weren't weeding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, or even there was a period of time where we didn't go to Sunday school. I don't remember what the situation was. And we would just, we would all sit in the service. Um, and everyone was always like, I can't believe your five kids are sitting in the service. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that kind of just goes back to like, okay, that we know that we have to be quiet during this time. Like, figure out something to do. If you have to count the bricks, count the bricks. Like Mm -hmm. if you have, you know, if you want to read or color, you know, doodle on the side, whatever, do that. Yeah. Teachers call that now executive function, like the ability to like tell yourself what you're going to do rather than just act out however you feel Mm -hmm. and expect everybody else to deal with it. Yeah. And you're what you're saying, Peggy is like, you like practice that. That was like a Mm -hmm. class. Yeah. That everybody had each day. And actually, it was almost from birth right, that we did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did we did playpen time before they could do the sit time. You know, they would have their playpen that they had to play in by themselves. Um, and and then we'd move the playpen like in a separate room around the corner so they couldn't see mom all the time, um, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think some parents struggle with is trying to help direct their kids away from useless and foolish things like pursuits like spending six hours a day playing video games or like things that aren't going to produce what well, it sounds like one of the things you're doing is you wanted your kids to learn skills and to do things that would produce productivity and activity and engagement with important things like family commitment and so on as they got older like were there specific things you did to try to make sure that you're to direct your kids away from useless and foolish things and towards meaningful things or or did you just try to get them so focused on the stuff that you were doing positively that you hoped you didn't have Well, to we have. got them involved at a young age. And we're privileged because we have our own business. Right. And so mm-hmm. all my kids know to drive a tractor. All my kids, with exception maybe one, know to drive a skid steer. Okay? <laughs> they just were involved with us as, as we would do certain things. And so they would be – all the girls worked in the business. Um, and like Ricky and, and Luke – I think at, at nine and eight, they were assembling snowblowers. All the snowblowers we sold, they would assemble. And um, so they became skilled with all, all the wrenches and everything from then on. So they did they did quite a bit. They were driving. It was really funny when we, when we moved here. This is 2014. So how old was Ricky at the time? Uh, was, young. Yeah. So he was very young. And so a truck driver came and wanted something loaded up. So he said, Ricky, okay. jump on the fork truck. And load him up. And so here's this little kid jumping on the fork truck. And I said, don't worry. He's been driving the fork truck for years already. <laughs> and so he, that, that truck driver came back in with a smile on his face. He said, that little, that little boy went out there, loaded that on my on my truck like he'd done it all along. Yeah. I think, well, for me, you know, I worked on Saturdays. And so 
Did you get paid? Like, did yeah. you get did you get something for it? Something. Okay. Small. <laughs> I got the experience. That's what I was always told. It's like told. the movie Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. You yeah. get knowledge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The experience was held over us. Which actually did pan out to be true, matter of fact. But, um, you know, Friday night, we'd all want to hang out with our friends. And I knew that I had to be at work, you know, 8 a.m. on Saturday. So mm-hmm. whatever decisions I made, you know, had to, you know, I always in the back of my head as well dad expects me to be at work at eight and i can't be there at 805 it's at eight so i mean let me ask you this as someone who remembers being a teenager why did you care about dad's expectations why did they mean so much to you i i think just from an early age of of encouragement you know a lot of these sayings are built to look at the positives and you know Oh, you know, I want to make dad proud. And am I a perfectionist now? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> but do you think you're a perfectionist in a neurotic negative sense? Or do you think that you're, you have a appropriately strong attention to detail? Um, I, I think it depends on the situation. <laughs> I, I can definitely be a perfectionist to, you know, a, a negative to a fault. Yeah. Um, but it's always, you know, I, two things, you know, I wanted to do my best for dad, but you know, the, the instillment that we're doing our best for Jesus. And mm-hmm. that's why I want to be my best is, you know, to, to bring God glory. Um, do you feel like you, and you could, you can tell your other sibling stories if you want a little bit on this, but a lot of parents feel like there has to be a cataclysmic moment where their kids like make their faith their own, mm-hmm. where it like ceases to be taken from their parents and it, it becomes their own faith. Did that, is that how it was for you or did it feel gradual or what? How did it come? How did it come that like you are an actual Christian? So as I mean, opposed to a de young Christian, right? We were involved in church stuff, like they're saying, like very young. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had an outreach group that it was like a drama group that we would go and do like presentations and um, tell the gospel. And um, I was part of that. And it was the night before that. Um, we were all like praying and worshiping. It was kind of like a rally to get us all, you know, hyped up. And um, one of the leaders, you know, we were all praying. And one of the leaders was like, oh, everyone come forward if you want prayer. And I was laying my hands on someone that would had went forward. And the person that was praying just saw me like kind of near there. And she looked at me and she said, Jesus loves you. And that was like a revolutionary moment for me. Just like mm-hmm. the simplest thing of like, yeah, like me, you know, he loves me. And um, like, I remember the first time, like I wanted to hear God's like voice or like I wanted to hear from God. Mm -hmm. I was up in um, the woods in one of the tree stands. Why? I don't know. Random place. (laughs) But, and I had like my Bible open and, you know, I just like, I think. And not a gun. You just went out there because it's this place to go. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, I was pretty young, and like I still remember like the verse, um, but I don't know. I just seeing them, you know, live their faith, and then by doing it with them, seeing like, oh no, like I see why they, why this is the truth, and you know, I see, you know, it makes sense, um, and just kind of carry on. So gradual to a point, and then carried on. 
do you guys have any final comments or advice for people doing the parenting thing or whatever? Oh, that's Brian. <laughs> Peggy said the fewest All of words. The above. <laughs> it it still it comes down to your relationship with God. Mm-hmm. I yeah. would I would argue that the parents need to first seek to be in tune with a relationship with the living God. Mm-hmm. And then the the two shall become one and that you work with your spouse to come into an agreement on how you're going to live your life to serve the king. And then from that, then you go to minister to your children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've said that a lot of times to parents and stuff is it's your relationship with God and then your relationship with your spouse and then the kids. The kids are not the center of your family. They're not the ones dictating what's happening. The, you know, that's how the Bible structures things mm-hmm. and that's you know, that's the biblical model. Right. And that's what allows the kids to leave, right? They right. they never were the center of the family right. and they don't have to be when they grow up. Yeah, one's the permanent relationship on this earth, one's the temporary one. Mm-hmm. And our job as parents is to prepare our kids for their permanent relationship. Mm-hmm. And so we need to have that in mind. And, you know, we talked a lot about relationships growing up. And, you know, yeah. that was a part of it so that they could have the same thing. Yeah, one of the things I think Lexi and I are struggling with, because our kids are kind of getting, like, into the teenage years, and one of them just went off to college, that, like... Because we will always be their parents and we'll always, quote, have a relationship with them. But it's it's not going to be the same. It's going to be almost non-existent compared to what it was. Whereas my relationship with my wife is going to be very similar. Like, I'm going to see her every day. We're going to work together in our yeah. household. It's gonna, that is, And in that sense, like, I think parents with young kids or people imagining having kids are like, no, I'm always going to have this super close relationship with my kids. And, like, maybe it will be, quote, close in that they love you and they come home at times and they, you talk with them. But it's not going to be like when you're parenting them. Right. And then they're going to go have their own life, and that's what you actually want. Right. Right. And that you don't mm-hmm. see them nearly as much as you see your spouse. And I, I think mm-hmm. that that's hard for people to be like, I'm going to release my kids out into the world and then they're going to be gone. And that was one of the big <laughs> things I, I taught in the Excellence for Parenting is the concept of release to succeed. That I want to prepare my kids and I re- want to release them to uh, go out with some of their other friends when I am reasonably assured that they have the moral standing to not get into trouble, okay? Mm-hmm. And that if they're in a situation that they're strong enough to leave. And that's why a lot of my girls work, and, and, and the boys, were actually kind of the moral standards for their class. Their friends would come to them and say, okay, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? Mm-hmm. But as life went on, you know, like Peggy was talking about that funnel opening up, mm-hmm. that you release them. But don't release them into sin. If you're reasonably sure they're going to fail and they're going to sin, you don't want your children to sin. It may have much longer consequences. But mm-hmm. but that means you better be at it in, in preparing them to, to release them. Mm-hmm. Okay, how are you going to handle this situation? Okay, And that's what, that's part of the building of the judgment in the situations. And, and my kids got in situations where they had to leave. Mm-hmm. And it protected them. And they were strong enough. Uh, morally to to leave yeah i think one of the things you guys touched on we uh, will probably end with this one of the things you guys touched on that i think you showed but didn't 
explain was what, what we sometimes call the church complementarianism. The idea that like female behavior isn't the norm and male behavior isn't the norm, but men are men are supposed to behave like men and women are supposed to behave like women. And, the, but, and then there's this like interchange where you're like, sometimes a woman goes to the husband, Hey, maybe we could tone that down a little bit. Like, like the, the, the feminine perspective informs the male perspective and like tempers it in the moment and vice versa. That sometimes the husband's like, Hey, love the nurturing, but like, this is going to lead to something that isn't great. <laughs> and that, that the, the mutual respect that exists between the male and female as different, sometimes not even understanding each other. And yet being responsive to each other is this sort of like something people used to understand about men and women, even if, even if it was rooted in a feeling of inequality, but like something that seems very, I think is very biblical, right? That like men and women are different, but yet you have to believe that the other person can inform you, help you, temper you, correct you, right? It sounds like you guys do that. We, you described your relationship that way. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't yeah. early. Okay, I I'll be honest with you. I, I just I was even though I was a believer, I was it just was out of whack. I, it was it was too arrogant, mm-hmm. and um, so I would receive correction from Peggy defensively, mm-hmm. and um, I got involved in the pro life movement. We hadn't, didn't have kids because of me for like ten years. Okay, and and I got involved in the pro life movement, and actually I was an elder at the time. And one of the ladies in the church came up to me. And I remember it very plainly. She goes, "Justify your lifestyle by by the scriptures." And it and I knew I couldn't because I knew the scriptures, and I knew I couldn't justify it. And so it, that started a whole chain of events. Being involved in, the, I was a sidewalk counselor at abortion clinics, mm-hmm. so that started a whole chain of events in that. I needed to understand, first of all, God's view of Peggy to me. Mm-hmm. And that Peggy was my God's second greatest gift to me outside my salvation. Mm-hmm. And the question was, did I treat her that way? Mm-hmm. And I didn't. And I that meant I had to change. Okay, mm-hmm. So I changed in how I would address her and how I would deal with her. And this was young, actually, right at the time we had our first child. Mm-hmm. So by God's grace, he rescued me from myself beforehand. Mm-hmm. And then that created this environment of teamwork that Peggy was on my team and, and I didn't need to get defensive over if she said, Rick, you're not doing this right. Mm-hmm. And I could always know that, that, you know, I knew that Rick was close enough to the Lord that if I prayed and, and maybe made comments or something, um, without, you know, just jumping on him or getting down on him or whatever, that he was close enough to God that he would be convicted mm-hmm. and and he would fix it himself. That worked the best. I remember we would be like, Mom, Dad is like going off the rails. And she's like, just pray for him. Just pray for him. Like she wouldn't be like, I know, it's annoying. She'd be like, no, just pray for him. And like that's just something that I respect to this day of, you know, me with my own husband is, you know, no, you don't you just pray for them. Like, yes. As a quick note to single men listening to this. One of the things that women find very attractive are <laughs> self-led men that the authority a man wields first is that he's God's steward. And that yeah. when God shows him how he must lead himself, he has the courage and willingness to do it. And then she knows she's going to be okay. Right. Because mm-hmm. he, like, yes. she's never yeah, gonna have to fight exactly. him. It's not gonna be a war. Yes. It's as if she could just help him see what God is already saying. 
he will have the courage to say, okay, this, I have to change. Mm -hmm. And then she knows she'll always be protected and provided for and taken Mm -hmm. care of because he will always do what's right. And so guys, if you're like, you know, I'm not getting dates. (laughs) It's not your looks. Like it's like, look first at the question of, are you self led? Do you have the courage to face yourself and lead yourself so that any woman who would bind herself to you would feel, know that she's going to be okay because you will always do what's right when you see it. Right. in yourself and leading yourself then of course she can follow you you can lead their family this will all work so guys you you've been here for quite a while i appreciate so much um my guests today have been rick and peggy DeYoung and their daughter abby monteith and everly who was blessfully quiet <laughs> blessedly quiet <laughs> um thanks for joining us for this episode of, of engage and equip if you like this episode rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform share this episode with a friend if there's a topic you'd like us to discuss, send it to podcast at highpointchurch.org. Podcast at highpointchurch.org. Otherwise, we'll see you in the next episode. We are um, working now to move towards engaging and equipping episodes that are beyond um, asking anything in some of the cutting room floor episodes we did so that um, you'll find us to be a, both a regular and engaged equipping resource in the coming months. See you guys next time. listening to this episode of the engage and equip podcast if you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org if you'd like to find more episodes you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast you can also find us on apple podcasts google podcasts overcast and other apps like that we hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.